Welcome to the Uncivilized Podcast. My name is Trevor Bohm and I will be your host. Every week or so, I try to get myself a fascinating human on the mic for you, someone who looks at the civilized world just like you do and says no thank you. Someone who wants to break some rules, to lead, and to bring their unique vision into the world. Someone for whom the status quo simply will not do. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I do. Please dive in. Hey folks, welcome back to the Uncivilized Podcast. This is Trey Verboom, your host. And today I have a doozy for you. Uh, I need you to like clear out all distractions for this one. Have a seat, take a couple deep breaths, and hang on. I get to interview Stephen Jenkinson in this conversation. And for those of you who don't know Stephen, he is the man behind the video, The Grief Walker. He is the man behind the book, Die Wise. He also wrote another book that's coming out called A Generation's Worth. This is a guy who knows more about grief and death than anyone I could find. And he has a sense of the way the world works and the way that death works and grief works that is, is just wildly unique. And Stephen has a way of inspiring you and me to think deeper and to ask better questions rather than just coming out and directly answering a question. So let your mind go on this one. Like he literally says, I want to inspire you to wander. I want you to think about this and think about this and think about this. And these are topics that are not light and fluffy, are they? But they are topics that we all have to deal with. And they are topics that we all have to deal with without any instruction and without any mentors, right? How often are we sat down and said, hey, people are going to die. And here's how you navigate grief. And oh, by the way, you're going to die. Here's how you navigate that death. I don't know about you all, but it's, it's like still back to my Pythagorean theorem anger. I learned the Pythagorean theorem, but I didn't learn about this stuff. And so I asked Stephen some really big questions and some really hard questions and he's so generous with his knowledge and his time and his effort and really trying to help us navigate this, for lack of a better term. All right. So before I do that, please go visit our sponsor, Zen Squatch. You guys have seen me wear the shirts. You see me doing the burpees. You see me meditating in it, right? This is a shirt with the big Sasquatch on the front. Go to zensquatch.com and use the code uncivilized for 20% discount and free shipping. Do this, please. They're supporting me, supporting this podcast, and I absolutely believe in what they're doing. This isn't a t-shirt company. This is a company inspiring people to get off their asses and move. This is a company inspiring people to get back down on their asses and meditate. So please go support them. Also check out Cured Nutrition. Right? They have been, if you remember my interview with Joe Sheehy from way back in the day, their founder, he talks about his own issues with depression and near suicide and drug addiction and how he's completely turned his life around. I love that man. And I love the company and I love how they supported us. So please go to curednutrition.com forward slash uncivilized and use the code uncivilized for a discount. Now, take a breath. Get ready for Stephen Jenkinson. If this episode moves you, please share it. My goal is still the same, to become a household name, not for me. My life is great, but because I see so much suffering in the world, and I know when people adopt the uncivilized mindset, that their lives change for the better. Okay, let's rock and roll with Stephen Jenkinson. Stephen Jenkinson, welcome to the Uncivilized Podcast. This is truly a pleasure. Uh, I have followed your work for some time. It was, it's quite interesting. It was perhaps six months ago, I was at a friend's birthday party and told his girlfriend that I, I volunteered in hospice for a while mm-hmm. on a, in a different stage of my life. She said, you need to talk to Stephen Jenkinson. Wow. Said, no, pardon me, but I said, who the heck is Stephen Jenkinson? And she said, he is the guy. And- I wonder this question myself. <laughs> And I looked you up and I actually thought, I, I'm not going to reach out. He's too big. This is, you're, you're the guy guy. 
Uh, and so when you came in to speak with, uh, with our men's group, it, it really, it opened my eyes and I, I have so many uh -huh. questions, but first of all, just thank you for your time. Thank uh, you for your energy welcome. and for showing up here. Listen, it's a pleasure. And, and to be asked, I always consider it an, an honor that I'll try to live up to in the time allotted to us. Beautiful. Thank you. Stephen, I don't even know where to begin with, with a man of, of your depth. You know, I want to talk about grief. I want to talk about death. I want to talk about why in the West, we are so afraid to bring this topic up, but yet when it is brought up, people flock to it. Why are we so scared of, of death and grief, grief here in the West? Okay. <laughs> so your girlfriend's going to enjoy this answer too. Um, the thing is that it's, first of all, it's important not to generalize across a population as, as broad and as um, self-avowing as North America, Anglo-North America tends to be. Okay. But I think we could allow for the sake of discussion and wonder that there are certain things that are recognizable to us as Anglo-North American, if you will. So it's not, you know, my answers aren't designed to pillory any particular anybody, whether people who look like me or anybody but me or anything. Sure. But what we're trying to do is wonder about things, not trying to be right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So with that caveat in mind, you know, uh, I... I was lucky enough to be on the receiving end of a bit of Mediterranean wisdom quite a long time ago now. A woman I knew um, was learning to cook from her Italian mother, uh -huh. and her mother was a remarkable cook. And somewhere along the way, her mother dropped this on her, just, just sotto voce, as they say, you know, under her breath, <laughs> and um, as if it was no big deal. But I've continued to be uh, overwhelmed by the 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 sheer alertness of her observation. She said to her daughter, food makes hunger, she said. See, now, the, 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 the intuitive fascist in many of us would immediately cling to the idea that hunger is a consequence of the absence of food, right? And you'd go with that, you'd run with it, just like religion or the hankering after religion might be evidence of the absence of God. You could say so. But then consider this possibility. If you've ever fasted, and you might have a cohort amongst your readership or listenership that's keen on fasting every now and then, you know, after the initial mayhem, biochemical mayhem, it's amazing what happens to your appetite. Even your willingness to fantasize about the next burger or whatever it is, it tends to go the way of all flesh, and there's some mercy in that, no? Mm. So what's it telling you? At the level of, of chemistry, of psychic chemistry as well, the absence of food does not prompt us towards hankering after food. It's the presence of food that prompts a hunger intuition, a hunger inclination. And if that's true at the level of digestion, it might be true at the level of insight and inspiration as well. So the first thing I would answer to your question about what's going on with the death phobia thing is, you know, the problem has never been, as it was said so often to me when I was in the death trade, uh, oh, we just don't talk about death. We just don't talk about death. That was never true. It was never true that that was the problem. And it was never true as an accurate observation about the dominant culture of North America. That, that, if you want to call it a conversation, was, has been there all along. Okay? What you want to pay attention to is the language that's employed and at, more as a, at a semantic level, what's being said. Not satisfy yourself that it's not being talked about. It is being talked about routinely. And it's the consequence of that habitual conversation that you're really asking me about. So somehow, you know, the realities of dying break through all of our belief systems, not only at the last minute, I should say. Uh, the realities of dying are taken together, I would call them a God, a divinity, a deity, a close at hand, 
distinctly undomesticated, unhousebroken. You will never teach it to pee in a box in the corner, right? So no matter how much domain you imagine you're going to exercise over that thing by taking your weekend workshops and your, you know, grief classes and your, you know, Pan-American Indian rituals and all the rest, the consequence, thank God, is that the death is not that interested in your take on it. It's not inquiring after it, and it's not doing battle with it either. You know, dying knows how to die. Dying people, not so much. Because we have to know how to be people, and we have to know how to be dying. And that's a tall order in a culture that's not really practicing person-making ongoingly in the form of initiation and other sort of culturally endorsed and enforced and employed strategies for citizen-making. And this is one of my great laments in the last uh, year and a half, is that if there was ever a time that's been crafted seemingly by something divine to give us a chance to more or less voluntarily rein it in, to recognize the unsustainable finally for what it is. And at the 11th hour and 59th minute with our feet on the, on the precipice, step back. This would have been such a time. And it's abundantly clear that that did not happen, is not happening will not happen, okay? So what up with that? My answer would be, um, we took, our, our death phobia is so adroit and so agile in the dominant culture of North America that we actually took the realities of COVID-19 and seconded them to our death phobia, such that the, the death phobia was more prevalent and more consequential in most of our lives than the opportunities that the crisis actually brought to us promised. And that is tragic beyond measure. And when your great-grandchildren look back on this time, one of the things they're going to wonder about is, man, if, if that wasn't enough, it's, it's, it really beggars your imagination to come up with something more compelling yet than the last 18 months. So that's a wide ranging answer, but it's a beginning. Yeah. God, I have... Will you speak to me about being a person? Like you, you said, we don't know how to be people and we don't know how to die. If right. I'm quoting you correctly. Yeah. Can we come back first to the idea of us not knowing how to be people? Is Truly. this... Would you mind speaking to that? I don't want to ask any more questions on that one. <laughs> okay. Well, um, it's, a, it's a daunting and injurious and insulting allegation to make, isn't it? Um, let's begin with the word human then. I'm feeling a fit of my school coming on. I've been without my school for uh, upwards of two years now. And so if I begin to occupy the the bully pulpit of, of the Orphan Wisdom School, just try to forgive me. <laughs> I, I asked that ahead of time. Okay. You have free reign, sir. All right, for now. <laughs> so we have a word human, yeah? And um, without much investigation, and rarely is the word investigated that I've ever heard, there's a sequence of assumptions that just float to the surface instantly, like debris, right? And these associations are basically unchallengeable. And to do so puts you in the realm of being an enemy of humanity. So the first question, you could say something like this. Are, once we are human, are we inevitably human for the duration? Can anything happen to our ability to be human where we misfire? Not where we make mistakes where we fundamentally misfire on the level of being a human. I wonder about that a lot. And how about this? Are we born human? Or as many indigenous cultures seem absolutely compelled and convinced by, we have to be made human. And who's in the human making business? Humans are. 
So you need a human to have humans, which leads to the diabolical dilemma that if you're not practicing human making as a culture, and my corner of the world hasn't done so probably for the duration, then it begs the question, where are the humans to come from if we're not engaged in making them? Are they just a spontaneous and naturally occurring bit of fluff, you know, like pollen in, in, in the fall? Or I wonder. So that's the first order of business. Here's the second one. We have the word human, and we have another word with the addition of one letter, an E at the end. And I've never heard anybody wonder why we have two separate words for what seems to be more or less the same condition the same set of, you know, descriptors. Mm -hmm. If you wonder about it, though, wonderful things can happen. Not comforting things, mm -hmm. but things that are full of wonder can occur. I'll try to do it now out loud. So we have human, which is a questionable thing now, hopefully amongst people who are listening. And we don't know how exactly we come by the humanity or if it's an inalienable thing for us. But still, we cling to the notion that we are more or less unerringly human. Something has to go horrifically Hitlerian wrong, you know, for this to be called into question. No? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the rest of us get a pass. Okay. And then we have this word humane, which is available only to humans. And I'm going to submit to you, it's an out clause. It's not, it doesn't. It doesn't confess to be so, but functionally speaking, that's exactly what it is. It says the following. There's, there's a behavior that we call humane, right? Whether it's putting down a suffering dog or, or euthanasia amongst humans or, you know, I don't have to give you any more examples. So sure. <clears throat> if we have the word humane, what is it telling us? It tells us very blatantly that humans are capable of not being humane. And if that's true, where does our humanity live if we can misplace it so desperately that we're capable of behavior that basically betrays the humanity that was entrusted to us? Mm. Okay. Third point. It's getting good, no? Mm. Yeah. Third point. It's not fun. But it's good. Yeah. 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 Third point. So I'm, I'm being interviewed a long, long time ago by two young guys. I've told this story before, but I've never tired of telling it because of how much I admire them. And uh, they're fairly young. Uh, one's in the West Coast of Canada. One's in Virginia, I think, somewhere. And they're kind of tag-teaming me a little bit, you know, just fine, fair play. And, uh, and then one of the young guys says, he said, now, um, I'm going to tell you a story that's going to sound like science fiction to you. And judging by your, tone, your, your look, it's probably too late for you, what I'm about to tell you. But it's, but it's coming on. <laughs> okay. What's that? Well, they're working on a serum, he said. Probably Switzerland and other places. If, they're not, you know, if the billionaires are not flying around, they're, they're working on the serum. And if you, take, if you take the serum, he said, you won't have to die. Mm -hmm. Let that sit for a second. Listen to the prejudice that is built into the characterization. Sounds like a neutral thing to say, but it's not neutral where dying's concerned at all. Bear in mind, I'm talking about human now and humane. So what's he saying? You take the serum, you won't have to die. What's the conviction that's laying there about death and about dying? It's somehow the kind of wretched booby prize of not being able to last forever, of not pulling it off. Mm. See, that, that's right in the characterization. Uh, you know, you, you learn how to listen when you're at the deathbed. Mm. If you're lucky and if you pay a lot of attention, you can hear things that don't get said. Mm -hmm. That's a good example. So he said, you take the serum, you won't have to die. So my question to you is, if I take the serum and I don't die, <clears throat> what will I miss? Fabulous way of dreaming something. Mm. Rather than what will I get 
which you kind of expect is coming. What right. will I, how will I benefit? He's actually saying, what's the downside of living forever? Yeah. Brilliantly observed, no? Yeah. And imagined and, yeah. and quake, quaked over, I would say. Mm-hmm. So here, here's how I answered him. I said, um, brilliant question. Absolutely. Uh, I've never been asked a better one. And I appreciate it deeply. And my way of doing so uh, is to not one-up you, but to burden your capacity to ask a question like that with another question. And so here it comes in rabbinic fashion. Here it comes. He said, well, I said, with all due respect, I think a phrase you might entertain be something like this. If I take the serum and I'm not able to die, you hear the difference in Mm -hmm. orientation? Mm -hmm. I'm not able to die. The question more deeply is, what will the rest of us miss by you not being able to die? See? Yeah. Well, I was led there by his question. I had never thought that thought myself, but it came to me in that moment. And I, I remain proud of it. And I remain proud of being prompted by somebody half my age to get there, you see? So what will the rest of us miss if we start choosing not to die? Well, we're already having practice rounds with euthanasia, which is choosing not to die. It is choosing to be killed. That's what it is, okay? I'm not saying it's right or it's wrong right now, but I'm acknowledging an obvious existential and phenomenological reality of euthanasia, which is an exercise in self-control, self-mastery, and self-determination. That means it's a refusal to submit to something larger than yourself. So you get to decide when, you get to decide how, and with whom, and the circumstances, and all the rest. You're not going to submit even then to dying, you see? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the PS on the end of the story about the interview is this. I'm driving in my truck here maybe about two years ago, and I'm listening to an interview with a guy whose name I didn't know, but he had a big hit, uh, I was going to say record, hit uh, uh, bestseller, that's it, um, a book called, uh, I don't know, The Brief History of Humanity or something like that. And so he, w- he had a, a follow-up book that uh, he was um, promoting. And it was, it was about the near future of humanity. Mm-hmm. So the interviewer says to him, uh, so what do you see coming? And the man says, uh, well, look, he said, I don't know if you're going to believe this. It's going to sound like science fiction to you. And I looked at the radio because it's word for word what I heard years ago. Mm-hmm. It's going to sound like science fiction to you, he said. And judging by the sound of your voice, probably too late for you, he said. Mm-hmm. But still in all, it's coming on. And people of your kids' generation or the generation subsequently surely will be obliged to deal with it. And they're working on a serum, he said. And if you take the serum, get ready for it. You won't have to die. Word for word, the same conviction, the same blinkered sensibility when it comes to dying. So, um, so the interviewer said, so what, what do you imagine that will make of us? And he said, well, we're going to have to find a new word to describe us, those of us who don't have to die. Because the word human probably won't quite fit anymore. Man, I'm really listening now. And the interviewer said, what word would you use? And the author said, I might describe us then as divine. That's the word he used. So I say this to you. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's a strange word. Mm. And every time I've told that story to a live audience, there's been gasps in the audience. Mm -hmm. Guffaws and and gasps Mm -hmm. uh, as if, this is a, a kind of, a level of um, unregulated apostasy. Mm-hmm. That there's something so fundamentally in error to say such a thing. That yeah. even those of us who are, you know, died in the wool agnostics and the rest, still recoil from the notion that humans could be characterized as divine. Right. Okay. Because divine must be as inhumane as other forms of non-human behavior are. 
you see. Mm. Yes, exactly. So the, 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 to sum the whole thing up, it seems to me that it's fair to make the following observation. If what makes the divine divine includes unerringness, I don't know that it does, but these are the standard, you know, fingerprints, unerringness, sure. omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, um, can't die, can't fail, no flaws, etc. those kinds of things. If that's what makes us divine, what is it that makes us human? In other words, I go back to the line I said at the beginning of this answer. It's human that makes humans. It's, it's something human that's in the human making business, not something divine that's in the human making business. That's a powerful thought to think. Yeah. I'm not, I don't know if it's true, mm. but it's compelling enough to deserve, you know, unblinkered attention, I think. Mm. So it's, it's clearly our flaws and our failings and our futilities and finally our endings and our undoings that make us human. Mm. That's the full, full fingerprint of humanity. All of those things together. This is not to say that we're not capable of wondrous and profound things, but all of them are have a best before date on them, don't they? Mm -hmm. Each one of them is destined and doomed to terminality. And there seems to be something in the order of things that requires it to be so. Astounding then you could say it seems to be in the natural order of things that humans are only human based on their ability to be arrested in their accomplishment by the fullness of life. So living a full life includes it ending. Ooh. And there's something about defying the ends and the limits of life that is fundamentally a violation of our humanity, a kind of violation that we perpetrate. Mm -hmm. And by the time, you know, your kids have kids, this won't be hypothetical, what you and I are talking about right mm -hmm. now. This will be people, people have, will have to contend with this and right. wonder about it and find a language, God willing, they'll try to find a language where the realities that you and I are discussing have been eclipsed. Mm -hmm. And what will they say? And what will we sound like to them? Right. I wonder. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I may need a, a day. <laughs> we could just pause for a day and I'll come back and, and carry on. Okay. Uh, Stephen, what would we rob those of us, those around us of? with our refusal to die? What do we not allow them to experience? Because right. I, I think we're jutting up against one of the biggest human fears or pains is losing somebody. And yet it sounds like from your perspective, their passing and transition is one of the gifts that they will give us. Is that correct? Am I, mis am I mischaracterizing this? Well, not, not if you're talking to me and asking me to buy into what you're saying. I don't think you are. But for many people, you would be, of course. Mm. You know, the language has to be pretty exact when we're starting to talk about this. Okay. So okay. let me use the characterization of losing someone. Okay. Okay. It's a very common term. You certainly didn't invent it. Okay. Mm. But for the moment, you will take personal responsibility for having used it. Sure. I'm going to see to it. Okay. So in a good-natured way, I'm going to ask you to reconsider, and here's why. Okay. The verb to die in the English language is an active verb by grammatical and semantic definition. You can't use it in the passive voice in a sentence and make any sense. Okay? So another way of saying that, not so technical, is dying is what you do. It's not what happens to you. Mm. That's the overture for what I want to say now. Mm. 
So please, in the next 30 seconds, just play along with me, okay? Game on. All right. So have you ever lost your car keys? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that was something, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. And do you remember catching sight of yourself in the mirror as you're, you know, looking for them and realizing in a drastic way that they are not coming back? Yes. Okay. You caught sight of yourself and you probably didn't do this. a boy. You probably <laughs> didn't do that. No, sir. I did not. All right. Okay. That's an important detail for later. Okay. Next question. Did you ever lose your wallet? Yes. Oh, man. That doubles down on the self-hatred, does it not? It does. Okay. And not to mention all the identity theft dilemmas and all the rest. Mm -hmm. you know, that was not an issue when, when I was half my age, but it's clearly an issue now. And you remember how you felt about yourself then? Yes. It's important. It's important detail to remember for what comes next. Mm. Have, you, have you ever lost your father? I have not. Your mother? I have not. Grandparents? Yes. Okay. I'd figured probably that was the case. Sibling? No. Okay. Let's stop there because, uh, you know, we could be in the realm of, of uh, kind of acute examination of one's sequence of uh, sorrows, which is mm -hmm. not really what I'm asking. Mm -hmm. What I'm pointing to is the fact that in each one of the examples of what I asked you, I was able to use the same word that you use with no meaning suffering as a consequence of doing so. It instantly translated, and you didn't for a second say, wait a second, what do you mean by losing? Mm -hmm. Because we got buy-in in the dominant culture of North America. We insist that losing someone is a synonym for them dying. Mm. And we use it accordingly. And I'm here to say, Losing is what you do. It's not what happens to you. When you lose your wallet, you're not saying, you're not telling me what the wallet did to you. Are you? No. You're not. You're not, no. you're not saying the friggin' car keys, you know, roll down the street and just, dis you know, you're not saying it. Right. Okay. But when you talk about somebody dying, mm. you are saying it. Mm. Okay. You're describing... In actual fact, describing what they did? No, you're not. You're describing what you did to them as a consequence of them dying on you. Mm. The understanding being that because they die, you are obligated to lose them. Mm. Think about what that means. You lose something as a consequence of their behavior? No, sir, of your behavior. Specifically, this is a confession about inattention is it not? Or failure to maintain, you know, a sort of proper care and feeding of your stuff, etc. Sure. Okay, well, this is true for your ancestry as well. And that's what you're saying when you say, I lost so-and-so. Mm. Now, anybody listening could say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't mean any of that when I say it. And I would say, whether you intend that by what you say is irrelevant. What's relevant is that's what you say. Mm -hmm. And that's what the word means. Mm -hmm. It means what you did to the dead person as a result of them dying and you losing track of them. You have no obligation to lose someone because they die. I'm not talking about you can have daily contact in the way that you once did, you know, dial them up and all the rest. Sure, but I am, sure. I am saying the repertoire changes and the obligations deepen as a consequence of someone dying. If you intend to maintain some kind of fundamental ancestral linkage that helps you be a human and helps you understand that upon your demise, with some you know, excellent work on your part and tremendous support from the living, you will join those people you previously thought to be lost. Which if you don't rehabilitate your language, you will join their number and your lostness will be compound. I didn't even come close to answering your question because I got snagged up in the first word that you used yeah. about losing someone, you see. Stephen, what language do you use? Die. A perfectly good industrial strength, Germanic sounding English word. <laughs> right? Fits the job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. 
You got Drano, you got Die. Okay. They both got the same sound. They both have the same concert. Mm-hmm. It cleans out the pipes. Yeah. It doesn't forget about transition and shit. I mean, it's the worst language to describe the the disfiguring, utterly tormenting, and relentlessly unprecedented strangeness of your dying. If you don't craft a language that carries that strangeness, you will try to turn it into something you've already lived. You see? And that's the problem with all the new agey transition language. And all it's trying to do is cool it all out, you see? Mm-hmm. So, it's, so it's manageable. Mm-hmm. But dying is bigger than you, remember? It's a god, you see? Mm-hmm. And when a god's in the house, the fundamental obligation is to learn its ways. Speak its tongue, you see? That's, I mean, that's the basic etiquette of the deal. You're not in God's house, excuse me, you're not in death's house. Right. Death's in your house. Right. And soon enough, the death will be in your bone house, which is the old Anglo-Saxon word for body. Mm. Bone house, in case you ever lose track of what you're actually made of, <laughs> the word tells you plainly. No? Yeah. So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a wondrous thing that we can lead ourselves astray by ordinary speech. Yeah. And it's equally wondrous, I'm saying, that if you rehabilitate your language so that you're faithful to the realities of your demise, Mm. you will be astounded at your capacity to reconsider all the habitual anxieties and uh, aversions and pseudo victories over dying that uh, that you populate and manifest when you talk, excuse me, shit, unquote. Mm. This is a doozy, guys, isn't it? Right? It's a biggie. Uh, take another breath. Just take a moment. Like, go walk around and please support our sponsors, both Zen Squatch, zensquatch.com. Use the code uncivilized and curednutrition.com forward slash uncivilized. Use the code uncivilized. When you support the sponsors, you keep this podcast going. You know, for the first year and a half I did this, uh, I was in the red. And I paid for it. And now these amazing companies have come in and said, hey, let us help you. So please, let's support them. Okay, back to Stephen. Is this why you're so... Unpopular parties? No, 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 no. Why it's... Why you're... You talk so much about having a good death or the importance of a good death. And even what the importance of a good death bestows upon the people who are who are still living after you go. Is this why this is so important to you? You know, I would probably use the word wise death rather than good death. Okay, fair. Yeah. Only because I'm trying to put the emphasis on the right syllable. Sure, sure, sure. I'm trying to, I'm trying to suggest that the principal moral and ethical and spiritual responsibility of dying wise mm. rests upon the person who's dying. And secondly, upon the person who claim people, excuse me, who claim to love that person and support and sustain them. And thirdly, to the, to the wider culture. Yeah. So I, I suppose the answer to your question for me is I've engaged in a program that I've come to call democratizing death wisdom. Okay. In other words, I'm trying to work myself out of a job. <laughs> See? And the reason I'm doing it is, well, literally, I should tell you a story. Please. It goes like this. True story really happened. Okay? It's a good criteria for storytelling. True story. <laughs> yeah. And, and shit really happened, too. Okay. So years ago, I'm trying to make a living as a stone carver, which is a joke then, and it's a joke now. But, you know, I didn't know the joke was funny yet, so I was still trying. I found this old man. He was in his 80s. To see if I could learn from, but I never put it that way. I basically was trying to steal from him if the, if the truth can be born. Mm. And uh, so I just asked him if I could come over, basically. And he said, why? And I you know, said, well, we're both doing the same work. Can you imagine? I'm like, I'm like 30 years old, right? I've been doing this shit for less than a year. This guy's in his 80s, and he sustained and supported himself by doing it. And I got the jam to say I'm doing the same thing as him. Right. It's unbelievable. Anyway, 
He said, are you? <laughs> I said, yeah, but I was taken aback. You know, I realized he wasn't, it wasn't an open arm response. Anyway, long story short, he said, you work every day? I said, well, because I knew what the right answer was, but not the correct answer. The correct answer was no, but the yeah. right answer was yes, you yeah. see? So I kind of half bullshitted and I said, well, I think about it every day. He said, I'll tell you what, you call me back when you do it every day. And he clicked the phone. Mm. So I sat there and I thought, asshole, of course, right? Because he's not cooperating, right? Because I'm a young guy and I mean well. Mm. So what? You see? Mm. What, what thread am I pulling on? Did he owes me somehow? Mm. Of course, I'm saying it to you now vehemently because I happen to be on the other side of the equation these days. And I'm getting pulled on quite a bit by people who are doing the same work as me. So I think, wow, I've lived long enough. I've been haunted by my own bullshit from 30 years ago. Mm. Anyhow, so, so I called him up a few weeks later. You know, I'd worked every day for three weeks. And I figured, I'm not gonna, I'm not, it's never going to be truer. I'm just going to try again. And I did. And he said to me, look, he said, uh, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. Okay. I'm going to tell you everything I know. I thought, wow, that was easy. He said, now you're probably going to be disappointed because it's not going to take nearly as long for me to tell you everything I know as you think it will. Okay. But there it is. And the, the other half of the deal is you will not keep any of it to yourself. Because if you do, and I'm dead, I will find you and I will haunt your ass to kingdom come. Quote, that's what he said. I like this guy. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah. Very proper Englishman, right? But he could, yeah. he could talk that talk. Yeah. So, so what am I doing by trying to work myself out of a job and democratizing the death wisdom that I stumbled across? Answer is, I'm trying to see to it that he does not haunt my ass to kingdom come. Because I did enter into a solemn pledge to keep up my end. See, mm -hmm. so that's, that's one of the reasons why. And the other reason is I saw what specialization does to people. Mm. Okay. I was in the business. I saw what it does to the specialists. I saw what it does to the generalists. I saw what it does to the patient and the family and the culture. And it does none of us any good to, to focus and, and localize what should be democratically available wisdom. Right which is fundamental to a working democracy. That, that, that when you hoard it, when you focus it in certain you know, vestiges of expertise, people are in it involuntarily even, but eventually they do, uh, submit themselves to a kind of um, expertise regime. You know, and we've gone through it again with the vaccine business, are we not? Right. And we don't know how to make a, a, a decision. Uh, you know, we can gain access to all the information you want, and it still addles you. Mm -hmm. You still don't know what, what right is and what best is and all of that. Okay, so I'm trying to do the same thing then with, um, with how to wonder about what this thing is called dying. Mm -hmm. right? And that's why it's so important. And that's why you hear the, the tone of voice that even though I haven't worked in this business for years, yeah. In a in a professional capacity, I can be riled up, and I can go from zero to sixty in about five seconds again, and it's and it continues to mystify me. And I suppose the principal reason is, I saw so much heartbreaking, unnecessary malpractice, mm. not professional malpractice, not legal malpractice, worse, because it wasn't legal malpractice. And I'm, I'm not even sure it should be. It should be some kind of citizenship level malpractice. Something like um, dereliction of duty mm. rather than overzealousness. It should, that's the real problem is pulling back from the edge of, you know, of trying to be well regarded, mm -hmm. trying to win friends and influence people, trying to be found to be professional and, and comforting and all these things. And the only way you can comfort someone who's death phobic is to collude with their death phobia, you see. Mm -hmm. No other intervention is going to be experienced as being supportive. You see what I mean? Yeah. Okay, so you can't support death phobic people in a way that they will recognize.
Mm-hmm. So you have to take a massive chance and be on the side of dying and see if you can drag the dying person kicking and screaming across the transom to your side. Mm-hmm. You, the dying person, and death all on the same side. Yeah. I, I want to revisit the, the question, if I can, of, and I, now I'm super hesitant about wording. Okay. I'm not going to, I want to use the word benefit, even though it feels obtuse. But what does a wise death bring both the dying person and the people who are left behind? Okay. Especially in comparison to one that you would say is unwise. Okay, very good. Well, I'm not sure that it brings much to the dying person. And the general reason for that is the dying people, on my watch at least, they waited too long, typically. They waited too long to investigate the possibilities of dying wise, Mm. including what it asks of them, not what they can get from it, what it asks of them, you see. So when you wait too long, Grown-ups know there's such a thing as too late, right? The rest of the body politic has no notion of too late. That's what hope is all about, right? It's never too late. Bullshit, it's never too late. I was there. I've got no reason to lie about that. Excuse me for the, for the obscenities. I'm not sure they, not they belong, but, but uh, it's just the vehemence of, of the, the misery that I saw it was a consequence of refusing the idea that it's that it's too late, you know, that you can still scramble and be a knucklehead, mm-hmm. you know, when you got two weeks to live. Mm-hmm. You know, you can proceed. You don't know that it's two weeks, but you can proceed like it's cl- like it's close, but you got to translate what close means. Mm-hmm. Anyway, to answer your question more specifically. So let's imagine then that the upside for the dying person is minimal. Mm-hmm. And that's very likely. Okay. The upside for everyone who's not dying that day, though, is considerable. Why? Because the principal observation I'd make for you is this. How do you learn dying and death? Do you learn it from a podcast? Hell no, you do not. Do you learn it from reading Die Wise or any other book? No, you do not. You might realize what you've realized or realize what you've missed out on by doing those things. But you learn death from death. Okay? You don't learn it from getting ready for death because getting ready is an insurance policy that mitigates against the realities of dying, be it spiritual or psychological or cultural. This notion of readiness is is deeply misapprehended as somehow enabling you to minimize the consequences of what you're about to go through. It's a very poorly understood under, take on readiness. Readiness should mean that you've learned the language of the deity, no? Mm. And that you're able to speak it in the present tense without any obligation, excuse me, without any, without, without there being a near future to count on. Mm. Okay. So the rest of us learn death from the deaths that precede our own. That's the democratic notion of it now. You see, every death before your own is a chance for you to get it right, Mm. which is to say then that your principal obligation as a citizen and as a spirited being is to attend upon as many deaths and demises as you possibly can before yours happens to slip across the transom and visit you. Because failure to do so commits you to being an unerring rookie. Mm -hmm. And you do not want to be an amateur when it's your turn to die. So, you see, this is is all the argument you need, I think, uh, for the wisdom of dying wise. Mm -hmm. Is that it's principally a cultural action perpetrated by a cultural worker. That's what dying people should properly be understood to be. They're culture workers. And dying wise is direct action. You see? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what's available. Mm-hmm. And that's what 
That's what proliferates and manifests when the dying person takes that work upon themselves. Mm -hmm. The failure to do so, the, the consequences that ripple out from that failure, that reluctance, that sense of betrayal and, uh, and the rest, probably exponentially supersedes the upside of dying wise. Sadly, but truly, I think this is the case. What I'm saying is, when you opt for a number of grief bypass uh, measures and operations towards the end of your life, one of the consequences is that you don't live any of the consequences. Mm. The consequences proliferate out behind you, my friend. Yeah. That's what the word awake means, by the way, etymologically. It means of the wake. Literally, it means to be gathered into the web of consequence, part of which you intend, the majority of which you do not, that fan out behind the way you have proceeded through your life, like ripples behind a boat, of course. That's why we use the word wake to describe that. Sure. And that's why the word wake uh, refers to that event that um, that is cabooses on the end of our death. Mm. Isn't it? Yes, it is. That's where people start telling lies about you. Right? But somehow the meaning of your life gets assembled in the context of your wake. And that's why you're not allowed to be there. All of you hippies are trying to engineer your presence as your own wake. <sighs> Think about it for a second. If you're there, there is no wake. It's right. just another friggin' party. You right. just can't stop. <laughs> you can't quit. You can't release your stranglehold on self-determination. But yeah. you've got to, or there won't be a wake. Without a wake, there's no wakefulness in the matter of what we're describing now. Mm. Mm. Thank you for that. Welcome. I have a personal question, if I may, and then I'd love to hear about your new book. And the, the personal question is more of something that we, we brought up after you came in and talked to uh, Connor, Jeremy, Mark, uh, Sylvester, like that group. And okay. one of the questions that was posed, I think, by Jeremy was, what changes would you guys make? And this may sound like an obtuse question, but it, it, it messed me up, Stephen. It was, what, question, what changes in your life would you make right now if you knew you were going to die in five years? At first, I think it was like in two weeks and that was too quick. And it was a simple matter of like, I'd call everybody and I try to go surfing and tell everybody I love them and, and all that. But in five years made me really question, would I still do what I do? Right. How much of what I do would I stop doing? Would I, would I just wander the earth and, and try to write another book or, or, or I don't, it, it really, I know this, this isn't coming out that articulately. No, it's do you're doing good. It messed me up because it made me start to wonder, is there a balance between acknowledging that, yes, some point I'm going to die and living every single day with the knowing that it could happen right now. So almost, not almost consequences be damned, but is there any point in future planning? Is there any point in building something that's going to take time and energy and presence now that will pay off later. Does that question make sense? So I guess I'm wondering how, how much do we acknowledge and incorporate death into our daily experience without letting it turn us into like, okay, cool. I'm just going to run up a hundred grand in credit card debt. Cause fuck it. Right. Like I'm not going to be here or have my whole life become a bypass of, well, it's going to happen when I'm 90 and I'll have 20 kids around me and it'll be beautiful. So I have plenty of time. Where do we draw that balance, if that question makes sense? Yeah, it all does. It Tragically, it, it all makes sense, what you're saying. I say tragically because we shouldn't have to endure being a consequence of a culture that simply doesn't cultivate this level of wonder. That's what makes it tragic. You know, I think you could, if you slightly altered the question, one of the questions that you asked, it could be this. So what would you do if you didn't know that you were going to die? <laughs> and surely the answer is, well, it would be business as friggin' usual, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Yeah. In yeah. other words, what would alter? 
Probably nothing, which tells you what? If that's your answer, the chances are very good. You have been living as if you won't die. In this moment, allow me if, I'm gonna see if I can find it. There's a moment in this book that I've written, excuse me, that might be worth hearing apropos of this thing. Let me just see if I can locate it. Okay, and while you do, I'm gonna tell the listeners, this is a book called um, A Generation Worth, A Generation's Worth. Right. Something that Stephen wrote, I believe, over the last year and a half, if that's not correct. Actually, from uh, I wrote it from uh, the end of January through the end of March of this year. And we just we just released it uh, late last week. Congratulations. So thank you very much. That's what it looks like. Beautiful. And it's illustrated. I can't stand it, but it's true. I mean, in other words, I'm very proud. Okay, so here's. Here's uh, a little bit. When I first wrote Die Wise on a piece of paper, it looked German. It still does sometimes. I said it aloud. It was agreeable enough in the mouth, but there was the matter of the tone. I managed to avoid distortion, I thought, but there was a whiff of extortion, maybe. If not, at least a whiff or more of exhortation. Did I really mean die wise or else? With the title decided, it was clear that I was telling people what to do with an important part of their lives. And in those days, I was combative. That's hilarious. Unlike now, apparently. Maybe there's a tone of me lording it over you, the reader. There's nuance to the title that isn't entirely bossy, though. And seven or so years later, I can live with it. If I'd called it die wisely, well, I'd have been describing your dying and not you. I'd have been party to that mad notion that your manner of dying is a kind of standalone last stand. Your one great chance at making a hero's journey out of your life. And I'd have been complicit with the not very covert conviction afoot in these days the dying can be some great act of summing up with you doing the addition, an act whose conceit is entirely separate or separable from how you've lived your life with you, the author, and the authority. In fact, your dying will almost assuredly be done in a way that your manner of living, the whole thing, will dictate and determine. That's the deal. You will die in the manner of your living, in a death-phobic, personality-drunk, autonomy-fixated time such as ours. That just does not bode well for your last days or for those who will outlive you or who will live with your grasping and delirious and bizarrely stoic example, who will bring it to their own death when their time comes. The consequences set into motion by how you die outlive you by decades, at least. That's your legacy, too, the part that you don't intend to bequeath. That's what I saw. People don't choose to die badly or unwisely. They just choose from among the paltry choices left to them by their predecessors. It's like shopping at a big GMO box store when you're sick. That's where the bad deaths come from, the frail, unnerving examples that make up our little inheritances. The death sanity of the near future, it's death wisdom. That's what's at stake when you're dying. That's what you're crafting. And so I called the book Die Wise instead to draw attention elsewhere. The wise part doesn't refer to the dying, it refers to you dying and to you living too. I made the case that there's no need to wait for a terminal diagnosis to turn your gaze towards those days, those nights, that twilight. Friends, there is such a thing as too late in these matters. If you do not live as if you're going to die, you will die as if you're going to live. Too late 
is not futility. It's wisdom for grown-ups. Well done, sir. Thank you. That is beautiful. Thank you. And poignant. I think so. If you don't live as if you're going to die, you'll die as if you're going to live. It feels what could like, be what could be worse? Yeah, it feels like you're you're calling upon us to take responsibility for something we we don't culturally. Probably more more than that. Yeah, I'm I'm asking for some recognition of the real possibility that most people don't seem to be proceeding as if they know they're going to die. Mm. They're proceeding as if they could die or they will die someday, which is the same phrase as not dying at all. See, mm -hmm. here's the thing. People have asked me apropos of COVID-19 in these interviews, they said to me, well, of course, with COVID-19, we're much closer to our deaths now than we've been. Whoa, 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 whoa. What makes you say so? Because of the body count on the news? That's that you think that brings you closer to your own death? I promise you it doesn't work that way. Mm. I promise you that the news of someone else's death does not bring you closer to your own. If it does, it's for a few seconds. And then you move on. And there but for the grace of God, go you, no? Right. Okay. So, so sadly, our own death is mostly an allegation. Mm. You see, instead of a responsibility. So that's the plea I'm basically making, is that your death is entrusted to you in the same way that your life is entrusted to you. Mm. And you can betray it in the same way that you betray your life. Oftentimes by the same mechanisms, the safe, same self-absorption, the same unwillingness to wonder the deep and profoundly discomforting things, the, the, the same willingness to, to be habituated, you see? So, so the language that I've tried to find to talk about these things is fundamentally a language that sows discomfort, mm. you know? So you could say, I think we're towards the end of our time now. So I'll, I just maybe, there's no summing up, you know, what we're trying to talk about here. We're just yeah. seeing if we can do justice to the last two minutes, right? Sure. Okay. So I'm sitting in a, in a yoga studio. I'm being introduced. And uh, I'm listening to the introduction, as I often do, because I've got to figure out what I have to deal with once I stand up how deep a hole the introducer has made for me. Right? <laughs> and the more, the more laudatory it is, the more problems you have <laughs> climbing out of the hole, right? Because who wants to have to deal with a quote, a genius in front of the room? <laughs> People feel insecure enough without being in the presence of somebody who's all, you know, you understand what I mean. I'm not calling myself a genius, by the way, but sure. anyway, so... So, and somewhere during the, the thing, she, she called me a visionary. Mm. Obviously well-intended and very, very kind language. I've heard worse. So, I mean, <laughs> it's not the worst thing you could be called, but it is something to deal with. And so when finally the mic was turned over to me and I stood up and uh, somewhere in the first 30 seconds, I said something like this. Now I was paying careful and close attention to the various allegations that were made about me in the introduction, all of which were kind. And I appreciate them all, but I do have to take up the question of the visionary allegation here. It's not to say that I haven't done my work. I'm not pretending I haven't, I have, and I continue to do so, and I'm not blinking too much. But for all of that, I'm not sure the word accurately describes not so much my intention, but my consequence. And so I'd rather consider myself a divisionary. And the word literally occurred to me in that moment. Now, I don't think the word exists in the English language until I said it. And as soon as I said, I realized, man, that shit is so true. Mm. You know, that, I, that this is the consequence of, of fessing up in a time that, that is unwilling to do so. It's kind of like the emperor's new clothes story, you know. The dude's naked, but everybody's admiring the suit, mm -hmm. right? So at what point do you say, 
wait a second, you know, while you still can, yeah. while it still matters. Right. And so that's what you hear me doing. And, and, uh, and divisionary, apparently, you know, I remain. Mm -hmm. I don't recommend it as job description for anybody else. I, I'm not clear that it's working out for me, but this is by default what's been left to me since most of the, the more honorable positions have been taken up by others. Mm. Thank you for this, for all of it. Uh, as I said, I think coming in, I have more questions and I have questions upon questions upon questions, but I appreciate whatever you want to call yourself, uh, the inspiration that you give for further wonder and for further questions. And I would rather that all day. Mm. And if you just, we just came here and checked boxes. So thank you so much, truly for your time, for your energy, for, for being a divisionary and, <laughs> and for sharing, for poking the bear, for poking the box and, and making us all look deeper and feel deeper and, and ask better questions. I, I mm. truly, truly appreciate you, sir. Very welcome. Allow me to finish with uh, words that are not mine. Sure. But, but my, uh, my fellow countryman who's dead now, but his consequences at least is enduring as his music. I'm talking about Leonard Cohen now. And he's got a song and uh, we'll close off with this. And this is me thanking you for uh, the grace of your time and your questions. He said, I'm sentimental. If you know what I mean, I love the country, but I can't stand the scene and I'm neither left nor right. I'm just staying home tonight, getting lost in this hopeless little screen. But I'm stubborn like those garbage bags that time cannot decay. I'm junk, but I'm still holding up this little wild bouquet. Next time. Thank you, sir. I appreciate Thank you. you. Welcome. This is Trevor Bohm signing off on another episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. If you enjoyed this, please give us a share. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And if you're interested in getting a hold of my book, Man Uncivilized, whether you're a man or a woman, please go to www.manuncivilized.com forward slash the book and get reading.